Pixar doesn't just make great movies. They also have a lot to show us about how to facilitate learning more effectively. Today's guest, Josh Eiler, and I talk about lessons in teaching from Pixar. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. It's so great to be welcoming back to the show Dr. Josh Eiler. He's the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence at Rice University, and he also was a former guest on episode 16, talking about biology, the brain, and learning. Josh, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. It's great to be back. I mentioned to you that we I didn't realize our, our children were so close in age. I have a son who's three and a half and a daughter who's one and a half. And you have a daughter who's three. I <laughs> do, yes. Always I, exciting. <laughs> I was wondering, over the summer, we had movie nights, and there were three of them. And I wondered if I was a bad mother, because I took our son to see Up and Cars, which he had seen a bunch of times. And sure. I'm forgetting what the last one was. But particularly with Up, because that movie just starts so horrifically with just the big loss. And I'm not even sure if we should spoiler alert, maybe not give that away, but there's a big loss in the beginning that I as an adult could not stop weeping the rest of the movie. But my son was completely oblivious to that. And he just doesn't seem to get scared by anything that he's seen yet on movies. He's sort of not not that scared. So I I felt better as a parent afterward that he was not scarred. Well, I think you can't go wrong with Pixar Mm. uh, in any case. It did make me think a whole bunch about you as we were going through those three weeks because you actually taught a course on Pixar. And I wonder if you would share a little bit about how your course came about and what kinds of things you covered in it. I teach several courses in our first year writing intensive seminar program. And uh, this, uh, this past spring, I taught one focused on Pixar. And um, the idea hadn't occurred to me until a few years ago I read a piece by John Negroni called The Pixar Theory, which I think I'll talk a little bit about later on. Although I don't agree with everything in there, I think it's a wonderful piece. And the one thing it did convince me of is that it would be possible to teach a college course on the films of the Pixar studio. They're all very rich. Uh, they, they aren't maybe all ripe for multiple days worth of investigation. I would say Cars is a great film, but uh, the conversation runs shorter on that one than it does on <laughs> WALL-E. Uh, mm-hmm. But I divided it into units. We looked at uh, the hero's journey through Finding Nemo and The Incredibles. We looked at loss in children's media through uh, Toy Story 3 and Up. And then we spent a significant amount of time at the end of the semester on WALL-E unpacking its environmental messages, its religious symbolism, and its, uh, I think, really poignant commentary on what life is all about. One of the gals who watches our kids was just mentioning that she's writing her first essay for college. She's a brand new freshman in college. And just the, yeah, just the (laughs) fear, it was reminding me of just the fear that they can have. And it's helpful for me to be reminded of just how much pressure they can put on themselves and she was having a really difficult time, and I was thinking that your class must really help break down some of those barriers. I do think that there's sometimes this false impression that if 
a topic is, is accessible, it means it's not intellectually rigorous. But I think just the opposite, that the more accessible the topic, the more of the hard work that you can do on students' writing because they feel more comfortable with the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. It's, and is this plan to be done in the future again? I think so. I think I'll, I, I, I may offer it through that program. We also have a, a series of college courses here at Rice, which are um, courses that you that are actually um, within the, the place where the students live. So I uh, might offer it through that program as well. I realize that just talking about your Pixar course is a little bit misleading. Before we get into the outline, would you just share a little bit about your professional expertise, your, your discipline, and, the, and then a little bit about your role at Rice? Sure. I'm a, I'm a medievalist by training. I studied all the uh, medieval, English, uh, medieval English literature um, and was a tenured faculty member in English at Columbus State University before I came to Rice. Uh, what I do here, uh, I direct the relatively new Center for Teaching Excellence, and our mission is a broad one. We're here to support and enhance all the teaching that happens here on campus. So we work with faculty, we work with grad students, we even work with undergrads who do some of the tutoring and their own teaching here on campus. So uh, we offer programs and services for them. I also have a faculty appointment in humanities here. I was not aware of the last part of serving undergraduate students, and you're the first I'm sure not the only, but the first that I've heard of doing that kind of service. That's wonderful. Yes, it's actually one of the one of the wonderful things about Rice. One of the many is that uh, students do uh, have the opportunity to teach one credit courses here. Um, they have to go through a, a, a semester, well, seven week long kind of intensive pedagogy training, uh, and then they have to get their syllabus approved through their college, uh, their college master, and they need a faculty sponsor. But then they can offer, um, if it's approved, they can offer a one credit class. And we have everything from uh, physics courses to courses on Harry Potter to, uh, to how to successfully barbecue. So it's uh, lots of different <laughs> uh, ranges of topics. What a powerful experience. They get a lot out of it. It's a wonderful program. This is episode 65, so any of the things that Josh and I talk about will be available for you to click the links on at teachinginhighered.com slash 65, including some tweets that we got from people. Just today, I asked the question, what's your favorite Pixar movie? We heard from Brian. He likes um, Toy Story 2. And Shima, I believe, likes Finding Nemo and The Incredibles. And she even went down to the character of Edna Mode from The Incredibles. And I had to go. I couldn't remember who that character was. I went back and looked at some clips. Yeah, I looked. I was reminded. I have to go back and watch that movie again. It's been a long (laughs) time. And then Sandy Morgan likes Monsters, Inc. So we got a little... Uh, an eclectic mix of favorites there. A broad range, for sure. And is it just completely against the rules if I ask you what your favorite is? Is that? Oh my, that's a tough one. <laughs> I can't, I can't answer it. So you can just push it right back that at me and say, tough, you know, the the most recent one, uh, uh, the most recent one, Inside Out, I think is is really good. I think Up is my favorite. I think that Wall-E is probably their best film. Mm. I really liked Inside Out. In fact, that was one of my recommendations about a month ago when it Ooh, came out. Great. We went and saw it. That was a, that was my recommendations. And you actually brought me to my next point that you and I have a, at least one cautionary note. Yes, we know yeah. that Pixar movies are not real or they're not based on anything remotely resembling reality. And there was a hysterical episode of the podcast called Very Bad Wizards. And they talked about some authors had criticized in the Inside Out movie because it didn't 
accurately express how the brain truly works. And they were just so funny because it's like, did Finding Nemo actually represent how an actual fish in fish tanks work? From a, Did they actually talk in Finding Nemo? So they thought there was over an abundance of criticism in the academic world against Inside Out in sort of a ridiculous way. So you and I are not actually saying that the lessons in teaching are represented by true fic- uh, nonfiction tales. These are actually fictional characters we should warn sure, people. Sure, yeah. So they, they inspire us to think about teaching in different ways. And I really really enjoyed the episode of Very Bad Wizards where they just, they can, the two of them can be so silly. So I put, I put a link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to go back and listen to them just ridiculously pull apart some of the criticisms of Inside Out. And we have six lessons that we both collaborated on to say we could draw from Pixar movies and bring into our teaching. And the first one is that opportunities to learn from our students are abundant. And you've you've got an example from Finding Nemo. And I'm going to just play the clip real quick, and then we'll let you share how you connect this clip with opportunities for our students to learn. And this is Dory speaking whale. We need uh, Dory. To find what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you sure you speak whale? Can you I love it. Josh, would you share with us how that represents to you opportunities to learn from our students? <laughs> at the conclusion of that clip, he, of course, doesn't believe that she can speak well at all and that she's making all this up, um, and which fits right into her character arc as having short-term memory deficits. What he learns is that she can speak well and that what she has just been told was that they need to let go. And at that point, they're inside a whale, literally holding on to the whale's tonsils. And so it makes realistic sense that that's what the whale would say so that they can go, then go up through the blowhole and out. But at that point, Marlon happens to be at a, a crisis point in his own life. Uh, I remember at the beginning of the film, he loses, uh, he loses his wife. Uh, she's killed. And then he's, so he's overprotective of Nemo. And that overprotectiveness leads to Nemo actually taking a risk that, that leads to him getting captured. The fact that Dory is not only able to translate whale, but then teaches Marlon exactly what he needs to hear at that moment, it's, they say it's time to let go. Uh, I think represents the opportunities that we all have to learn from our students. I think certainly teaching is often conceived of as this relationship where we are imparting wisdom onto students. And I think that certainly, you know, the, the role of being a teacher is about helping our students to learn most effectively. There's, there's no doubt about that. But I think if we only focus on that, we miss out on those moments when students can uh, share something with us that, that opens our eyes to the material in, uh, in a way we have never seen it before or offers a new perspective or an element, a piece uh, of, a, of a 
of a puzzle that we hadn't considered before. And so I think that that's a really important aspect of teaching. That's what keeps teaching fresh and exciting. And so I think we need to be more open to those moments where we can learn from our students. I think um, certainly uh, some of my own research ideas have come out of class discussions I've been having with students. Um, I've, I've, I've sort of parlayed those moments into undergraduate research projects where we co-write articles, and I know many others have done very similar things. So uh, I do think that those moments can be some of the most special ones that we have in classrooms, and we need to be on the lookout for them. There have been two areas where my students have been teaching me recently, and I shared a little bit about this in a recent podcast and also on my blog, and that is that I know I have such a tendency to make assumptions. I shared about making an assumption that a young man would know about a figure in the Black Lives Matter movement, and then I proceeded to not only make that assumption and sort of embarrass myself, but then I proceeded to tell him the wrong, <laughs> I shared the wrong story about the person and I got my two names mixed up. So I, I, oh, that's, okay. I'll put a link to that in the show notes in case anyone wants to hear more further about my stupidity. But also, I mean, at the same thing, there was a student whose mother had died of cancer last year. And then I, I was making an assumption that it would be the same experience as if that happened to me. But this man, that's pretty much all he had known since he was 13 or 14 years old because she had been ill for such a long time. Anyway, every day goes by where there's something where I go, okay, you did it again. You can't make these assumptions. And I think that the best thing is that I just keep that curious mind of really wanting to learn about their lives and wanting to learn if they are in a painful situation, just wanting to listen and not feeling like there's much I could do to fix it other than help them get any help that they need from our counseling center or things like that. But yeah, our students have been teaching us a bunch. And then just recently I learned a little lesson about sequencing. I'm teaching three sections of the same class and two of them, I did the same order. And for some reason, I still don't know why I did the middle one. I skipped the order of something and I sort of started by giving examples from a particular company instead of staying a little bit more with the explanation of definitions and key terms and things like that. And it's amazing how when you don't get your sequencing right, by the time they got, I had them listen to an interview with the CEO of Whole Foods, and they were supposed to then draw from there about examples of different stakeholders. How does Whole Foods address customers? How do they address investors and members of the community? And that section couldn't give me any examples when the interview was over. It was 10 minutes. I'm going, how could you have none? I mean, I even wrote some on the board <laughs> and it was just the power of sequencing in our courses and how important that is to think through. Sure, definitely. Yeah. Our, our second lesson is great teaching begins with a boundless passion for our subject. And you have an example from Ratatouille. Oh, yes. I think that uh, that movie is great for all kinds of reasons. Um, what it means to make art, what it, what, what it means for arts, uh, artists and critics to interact. But one of the things that I think uh, it, it in, inspires about the way we think about teaching, for example, is just how passionate Remy the Rat is uh, for, for cooking. Um, there's a scene early on where he has, he has a bit of food. I think it's cheese, a really, a really great cheese. And he's trying to give it to his brother, uh, another rat, obviously, who who then just gulps it down, and and Remy is appalled that he wouldn't stop and smell and savor the beauty of the food before he would do that. And then, so he's uh, he spends the film trying desperately to find an outlet for that passion, and through cooking, through through his ability to 
to translate that passion into what he's doing. He's able to reshape uh, reshape the cooking environment of the restaurant. He changes the minds of um, uh, he changes the minds of many of the people he's working with. Right? Uh, certainly, he brings the the critic the critic around. But but I think the the most the biggest example of the teaching that happens there is with Colette, who is one of the chefs in the restaurant. Um, she's a little jaded at first. Uh, she becomes inspired by the what the passion that she sees in Linguini, who's the kind of the puppet for Remy. He's the Remy. It lives in Linguini's head and is sort of pulling his hair certain ways to make the dishes the way they need to be. Uh, so Colette is originally inspired by that passion, but once she realizes it's Remy. Uh, he teaches through that. He conveys not just an expertise, but he makes other people want to be better at what they do, want to know more about what they do simply because he's so passionate about what he does and, and, and subsequently is so good at it because he puts so much of himself into it. And I think that in the classroom, one thing that we know for certain is that um, something that can bridge the chasm for students between unfamiliarity with material and uh, successfully learning that material is to follow the instructor's passion. If, if an instructor is passionate about what they do, they're deeply invested in the material, excited about it, students will often, uh, will often come along uh, and, and be invested in the material as well, simply because they want to know what is it about this subject that makes that can make someone that excited? What is it about the puzzles that we're going to solve? What is it about the the the, the material itself and the nature of the discipline that, that can draw people in like that? And so I think passion is sometimes an underrated part of, of what we do as teachers that can be really effective in reaching our students. The next lesson in teaching from Pixar movies is from Finding Nemo, and it is gradually reducing coaching helps students learn. And we're going to start out with a clip from Finding Nemo. And this is the first day of school. And we know something about the, the dad of Nemo, and that is that he's pretty darn protective. And here's a, a quick clip from Finding Nemo, the first day of school. One of the first places that we might go mentally in listening to that clip is the criticism of helicopter parenting. And there have been lots of articles about that and certainly something that I have witnessed in my teaching. But that's not really where I want to go at this point 
I want to start with just that in our teaching, one of the things that I've noticed is we can have one of two extremes, neither which is very good. We either don't give students much of an opportunity to fail, and we have heavily coached, heavily guided classes, and and there isn't a chance for them to address what it's like to have feelings of ambiguity and address failures, small or large, or we go all the way in the other direction and we say, well, this is what it's, at least I've, my colleagues have said, well, this is what it's going to be like in the business world. They're not going to get a lot of direction. So I'm going to put them in this, the sink or swim method of teaching. And I would say that either direction is not necessarily healthy in our teaching. And early on, I used to work for a computer training company, and we hired an instructional design professor from Utah State. His name is David Merrill. He has since retired but is still loving his grandchildren and doing a little bit of consulting the last time that I checked. And I linked in the show notes to one of his articles on instructional design. And within it, he talks about the importance of reducing coaching. So when we're, we're teaching something, part of our instructional design should be, well, the first time they go through something, if it's a skill that they're learning or, or a series of steps, then yes, they're going to get heavy coaching and we're walking them through. One of the things he emphasizes is the importance of multiple representations, showing different examples of what it looks like when it's done right or when it's performed right, if it's a skill, or showing what it looks like when it's not right. And I used to teach applications courses, computer applications courses, and then I hired and trained other people to teach them. And that was a big thing where if you are just teaching someone Microsoft Excel, which I did, I'm embarrassed to say for at least a year, my idea was I'm teaching you Excel because you're following the steps that I'm telling you to click on. I want you to click on this menu and then click and do this. And they get back to their office and they can't really use it. They had a great class. I I scored wonderfully on my teaching evaluations. They always wanted me back to teach, but I wasn't actually teaching. I was more entertaining and demonstrating is the language that Merrill would use. Demonstrating and and what comes after demonstrating is what we're more familiar with, where they can actually apply it and integrate it in with their own situation. And our instructional design model back then didn't really have as much of that in our business model. And so it's this idea of when we think about Finding Nemo that his dad just so much wants to tell him every little thing to do. And then, of course, when he gets out from his familiar environment, things don't necessarily go that well for him. I can't stress enough how important I think uh, your focus on giving students the opportunity to fail can be. I think that, I mean, we absolutely know from the science on learning that students need those opportunities to fail in a low stakes environment in order to be able to learn something new. That in order to learn anything, really, we need to confront the failure of faulty knowledge, of faulty mental models, and that that students, A, aren't given enough opportunity to do that, and B, usually when they are, the stakes are too high, and so the benefit that students can glean from the failure in high stakes is is actually much less uh, because they have have so much invested and so much at stake um, in in being able to succeed. So if we lower the stakes or, or even give no stakes, just give feedback on an assignment, students begin to be able to utilize those opportunities more effectively in order to uh, in order to succeed in our courses. And it reduces that sting of the failure too. And they start to go, oh, I could actually fail and everything wouldn't fall apart. All right, this yeah. next lesson in teaching is 
We, we talked in our most recent episode about mindset, or maybe it was the second most recent. I will link to it in the show notes so people can go back and visit it if they haven't. It was episode 62. So yeah, I'm, it's been a couple episodes with Rebecca Campbell. She spoke about mindset. And we have a clip from Toy Story. And this is the character Buzz Lightyear as he first arrives and has some ideas about himself and who he is and where he came from. Buzz Lightyear to Star Command. Come in, Star Command. Star Command, come in. Do you read me? Why don't they answer? <gasps> My ship! Blast. This will take weeks to repair. Buzz Lightyear mission log, stardate 4072. My ship is run off course en route to Sector 12. I've crash-landed on a strange planet. The impact must have awoken me from hypersleep. Terrain seems a bit unstable. No readout yet if the air is breathable. And there seems to be no sign of intelligent life anywhere. Hello? <laughs> he arrives into the scene with such confidence and, and vigor. And later on, he is watching television and sees an advertisement for himself as a toy and discovers that he is not who he thought he was. And because we shared on a recent episode about mindset, you and I aren't going to cover too much about that idea, but I'd encourage people to go back and listen. But I did want to ask you to share about some of your thoughts that you've blogged about and I did link to in the show notes about that it does take a little bit more than mindset if you'd share a little bit about an, another aspect we should consider. Sure. And I do think that that moment where he understands that he's a toy is a classic case of a fixed mindset. He believed that he was Buzz Lightyear, and that and uh, that his abilities were were kind of fixed within that framework. And as soon as he finds out that he wasn't who he thought he was, he goes through he goes through a period of deep depression. Mm -hmm. So it's only later on in the film that I think he's able to put it together and understand that he can be more than what he thought he was, which is the growth mindset there. But I do think that you know I I'm a huge fan of Carol Dweck's work on mindsets, and I think that. They've done a lot of good, not just in the classroom, honestly, but, uh, and I know James Lang had a recent Chronicle of Higher Ed article showing how effective they could be in higher ed, but I think all kinds of places, parenting, for example, um, the, uh, the, the mindset research has, has shown us how to be better parents as well, the kinds of things we should say to our children. So I'm a big fan of her research. I do think, though, that um, that... There's something there's something we could add to the equation, and that's the older research of the social psychologist Lev Vygotsky, who, I mean, he, he wrote about a lot of things, but one of his dominant theories was the zone of proximal development, which is the, that as individuals, we have, we have a range of, of, of how much we can improve before we need help from what Vygotsky called a more knowledgeable other. That could be a teacher, that could be a peer. Um, and I think that the... the, the one of the things that that can sometimes strike people about mindsets is, you know, we can we can certainly tell students and talk to them about the difference between growth and fixed mindsets. We can we can talk to them about how about uh, about ways to frame what they're doing within that that kind of context. We can talk to them about that and we can say certain things to sort of trigger more of a growth mindset. But there we're, we'll also be working with students who have experienced failure in their lives. And I do think that sometimes for, for some students, simply hearing 
growth mindsets are possible and they will help you may not be the end of the story for them, may not be all they need. And and so helping them to understand and to, to work within uh, this this idea of Vygotsky's that um, that we have we have a, a range. I can start here at A, and I'm going to get to point B, and at that point I'm going to need someone someone's help. But then I can have a new range, right? That that just um, makes it a bit more complex, and that in that complexity, students may find uh, a a bit more room to roam in terms of in terms of their learning potential. It reminds me a little bit too, and I'm not sure if. Forgive me if, if if you've necessarily already <laughs> done this thinking, but I had Peter Newberry on the show from UCSD, and he his background is in physics, although he works in their teaching and learning center now. And, and he shared about just the importance of having networked maps in our brain and the retrieval that's possible there and what it's like to think about how an expert's mind is mapped and able to quickly, if he was giving the example of the which he wish, wishes wasn't the case, but so many times in early physics, let's do an exercise with you have a pulley and you have a cart or things like that. And, and how fast mm-hmm. is it going to go? And that's all I can say about that, by the way, <laughs> that's my tiny bit, but just that the expert goes, Oh, that's that kind of problem. And I already know what a whole vast set of resources I could draw from to address a problem like that. And I can map it so quickly as the expert Versus the novice is going, mm, what kind of problem is this? And where? And it's just not that speed or confidence, I guess, to know and, and to have that, that whole network of information and knowledge mapped in one's brain. Mm-hmm. Right. And so simply, say, simply talking to students about growth versus fixed mindsets doesn't overcome that, <laughs> that mm-hmm. initial impulse, right? It can certainly create the context in which students will be successful. But uh, understanding our intellectual development, I think in more complex terms, I actually think that helps students to be able to wrap their minds around the learning process. I like the, your, your appreciation for the complexity and all of that too. All right, number five, our fifth lesson is the pursuit of knowledge can be heightened through curiosity. And I know this is one of your favorite movies and also your favorite example, so I'm going to pass it over to you. This is, absolutely. This is Wally. Um, and uh, I think one of my students in the course last semester actually said it best. Uh, she said, curiosity is what makes us human. And I, I do think that curiosity is one of those, uh, one of our most deeply rooted mechanisms by which human beings learn. Uh, it's, it is with us when we are babies. It's, it's very evident in the evolutionary record uh, of how beneficial that curiosity has been, how tied it how tied it is to learning, especially learning new concepts. And so one of the things that's beautiful about the, about the film Wally is that he falls in love with the human race because he is curious about them. Uh, he has this insatiable pursuit of knowledge and wonder at all things connected to human beings. And so, you know, the, probably the example that most people will remember is he has the VHS tape of Hello, Dolly, <laughs> that, he, that he watches over and over again, simply in order to learn about who these people were that left all this garbage behind. Uh, he finds just, he finds paper clips, he finds bits of what we think of as trash that he finds as treasures because they teach him something. They give him information to, to, to put another piece into the puzzle of who they once were who, who occupied this planet. And so it's that curiosity, that, that need to know, that desire to know, that I think 
we really need to be cultivating in our classrooms. That, that yes, you know, students can memorize material. They're good at that. Yes, uh, yes, we can we can design courses that that integrate uh, that integrate what we know from the research on teaching and learning. That's even better. We can do that. We know how to do that. But unless we're really tapping into these deeply rooted structures, this this natural curiosity that we all have when we are children, uh, that that somehow gets buried over the next 18 years, uh, that unless we tap back into that, we're we're not necessarily doing all we can to help students a, a, attain the level of success that they might otherwise. And so there are all sorts of ways to do this. I mean, the most basic way is asking questions. Uh, I've been uh, been reading this really interesting um, study by a developmental psychologist who was looking at the types of questions two, three, and four-year-old children ask, and they mirror uh, the the questioning process that the best classrooms mm. utilize, which is first we're asking more basic level questions, and then we ask questions that allow uh, that allow our students to apply that information. It turns out that two-year-olds and three-year-olds are doing the exact same thing. They ask neat. They ask Kind of fact-finding questions, and then they try to apply that to their their larger uh, their larger con- conceptual frameworks that they're building. So everyone already knows how to do this. In fact, that educational process is is kind of ingrained in us. And so building courses that 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 looks like that 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 tap into that, I think we're helping our students much more. You know, constructivism is another way to do this. Allows allowing students to to ta- to delve into that curiosity, ask the questions themselves, build build networks of knowledge uh, for themselves with our guidance. I think that's where sometimes where people get put off of constructivism. There's a sort of a, a rumor about constructivism that the teacher is out of the picture, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily true. There are all sorts of models, uh, and I think research has shown the most effective of those are uh, are the ones where the instructor is is helping to guide the process at least minimally. So um, all sorts of ways we can design courses to cultivate that curiosity for students and I actually think we do a disservice if if we if we ignore that aspect of it. I know this is always an area I can improve. I don't think I'll ever go even a class session without thinking I could have done better at this. And I sometimes my hesitancy, I think, is when there's such a fine line when you open up this that a student might be wrong. As an, a recent example, I was illustrating how many business ideas don't come from seeking opportunities. They come from trying to solve problems. And mm-hmm. when I had a, found a knife that was specially designed, it was like a regular knife, but also had a, some holes cut out in it that could scrape off butter because butter is so hard when we take it out of the fridge and you try to spread it on bread and it and it won't spread and it tears your bread while you're, while you're trying to do that if, the, if it's still cold <laughs> right. and so I showed this picture of a knife what do you what problems do you think or what problem do you think this knife solves and students got that answer wrong three or four times in the classes and I, I think that's okay it's just I'm just I'm uncomfortable with it when it initially happens because I don't want students to be wrong these are mostly freshmen mostly 18 year olds I don't want to embarrass them they're first time out of the gate but at the same time they remembered that knife and they remembered that idea that a lot of businesses product ideas get started from problems and right. I think I made it okay and and perhaps I, mean, I guess the best case scenario is I made it okay to have those small failures in the class and we see it's easy to recover from them how could they possibly know what the knife does I wouldn't have known either when just seeing it for the first time well sure and just the notion of Designing uh, designing businesses based on, or, or business ideas based on 
problems, wanting to solve problems. I think it gets right to the heart of, of what we're talking about that allows students to delve into those problems and come up with come up with solutions or pieces of solutions. I think that's when that's when we're at our most effective as teachers because that's when students are in an environment that they are able to be drawing on uh, those those uh, kind of mechanisms for learning that are that, that feel most natural. Our last lesson in teaching is learning happens everywhere, and you have an example from such a great Pixar movie, Up. Right again, probably my favorite. I do think that certainly we're focused on the classroom here, but the reality is that learning is a very big idea, and that it happens everywhere. You know, I learn something every day, and I'm not I'm not in a classroom anymore, uh, at least as a student. So, um, I so I think that it can that some of our best teachers can also be found outside of the classroom. And I use Up as an example because his most effective teacher, Carl's most effective teacher in that movie, is his is his wife Ellie, and not only their their lives together, but also uh, the the material that the book that he, she leaves for him, I think, is very instructive. Not in a not in a classroom sense, but in a way of of living our lives, and I I do think that that's it's important to note that um, because in college students are going to interact with lots of people who they they may not be taking classes from, but you know their peers or their advisors or their um, or their tutors or or their RAs will have just as much I think to teach them and to contextualize what's happening for them in the classroom and. And you know, I, I identify with that. I've, I've I've been learning. I've been learning a lot myself, um, just on a personal level. Uh, my wife has been very sick for the last year, and I've learned quite a lot about courage from her. I feel like I learn so much from my my own three year three year old daughter every day about just how to tackle life with a toddler's zeal. So I think uh, I, I myself have learned quite a bit from from people outside of the classroom in ways that help me reframe and, and rethink uh, the, the, the material that I am learning in the classroom. So I always think that's important to note too. Absolutely. And one of the things I'm grateful for are communities like the people that listen to this podcast or read your blog or are out there on Twitter connecting with us. It's, it's just such an amazing thing to think how we can connect using technology and learn so much from each other. It's something I'm really appreciative of. This is the segment in the show when we each give a recommendation. And speaking of your wife's diagnosis and health challenges, I thought that I had recommended this before, but it turned out I just talked about it on episode (laughs) 51. I talked about vulnerability in our teaching, and I shared just how you have been so vulnerable, both with your students and also with the community of people that learn from you. And I wanted to officially recommend today your essay called The Grief of Pain. It is one of the most beautiful things that I have read in the last year. And it was just so touching. And I wept when I read it. And I just was so interested in seeing what people's comments were because you just, it wasn't just me, you just touched so many people that that read that article and, and it resonated with. And then you also wrote a blog about a little bit about your experience teaching that class with about the Pixar movies, the writing intensive class. And I thought that was another great thing that just illustrates your desire and ability to learn from your students. So I'll be linking to that at teachinginhighered.com slash 65. Thank you, Bonnie. I really appreciate that. 
I wanted to recommend the the piece that started my thinking about about teaching Pixar, and that was a blog post by John Negroni in July of 2013 called The Pixar Theory. In it, he tries to fit all the Pixar films into the same narrative structure, the same universe, and he actually just turned expanded it, turned it into a book also called The Pixar Theory. It came out a few months ago. Um, like I said before, I don't agree necessarily with all of it, but I really do think that it has caused a lot of people it started a lot of people thinking in really interesting, nuanced ways about these films and really showed, I think, their beauty of talk- for talking about lots of things, life, teaching, and I mean, the, the, list, uh, the list goes on. John was good enough to actually Skype in to our final exam so some oh, of my wow. students could debate him on his Pixar theory. <laughs> oh, what a uh, treat. It, it was, and he's a, he's a great guy, good sport, and so I really, I really appreciate his work in this area and the... So I would recommend that, to read the Pixar theory and start to really have fun with these films that have given people so much pleasure. Josh, just thank you so much for being on this show again and the continued conversation, and I'm going to look forward to the next time. Oh, thank you, Bonnie. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here again. Thanks for all you do. Thanks once again to Josh for being on the show two times now. I'm looking forward to that next conversation. If this is a time when you have yet to subscribe to the weekly update, now is the time to do it. That's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. What happens when you subscribe is you get the free Ed Tech Essentials Guide with 19 tools to help you use technology to facilitate learning in your classes. And also you get just one email a week with the show notes to each podcast and an article on teaching or productivity. Again, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. I'd also love to have you help other people discover the show by rating or reviewing it on whatever service it is you listen to the show on, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or what have you. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I welcome feedback at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback, and I'll see you on the next episode.